about Bitcoin, get a lunch of Bit Block Boom. The only Bitcoin conference you need to join is Bit Block Boom. Hello and welcome to the Bit Block Boom podcast. I'm your host, Gary Leland, producer of the Bit Block Boom Bitcoin Conference. And just for reference, I also produce the 4-Minute Bitcoin Podcast, available everywhere podcasts are available. Now, every August, I host the BitBlockBoom Bitcoin Conference in Dallas, Texas, with the help of many of my friends. If you are interested in Bitcoin, you really need to visit BitBlockBoom.com and take a look at the great speaker lineup and all the events that are going on around BitBlockBoom. You see, BitBlockBoom is a true Bitcoin conference, and I really mean a true Bitcoin conference. On this episode, I'm featuring a session from the 2020 BitBlock Boom Conference by Tone Vase. Let's take a listen. BitBlock Boom! Hey, everyone. Uh, Gary, thank you again for the invite. I had a great time here last year and was happy to come back. And uh, uh, thank you, everyone, for coming out. My name is Tone Vase. Uh, you may have seen me on YouTube uh, or at some other conferences. There's really no reason to talk about myself. Uh, so we're just going to uh, move on with the presentation. I do organize uh, several conferences myself. One of them is Unconfiscatable that Gary keeps mentioning. Thank you so much for that. Uh, probably my biggest promoter. And uh, we understanding Bitcoin and Malta and something more for the traders in the audience, uh, the financial summit that has now been canceled for the second time, the Dominican Republic and Bali, but we will be back in Bali at the least. All right, uh, there we go. All right, so what do I want to talk about today? I want to talk about decentralization. And um, I had this idea for a little while to just discuss it because everyone is just throwing this word around. And I guess the final trigger that caused me to say, you know what, I need to write an article because I only write maybe two articles a year, just not my specialty. That's why I do YouTube videos. And uh, we need to talk about decentralization. And I guess the trigger for that is I saw a giant Coin Telegraph article. Uh, I, I think I mentioned Charles Hoskinson a little too much, where he says that Cardano was more decentralized than Bitcoin. And um, that was just, no, that, that's insane. How can that be possible? And this is where I wanted to talk about what does decentralization mean. And I've been reading a bunch of articles and uh, articles from Parker Lewis, Arantxa and Capital, uh, were very, very good as far as uh, talking about uh, like why Bitcoin can be stopped and why it can be copied. Uh, but I wanted to specifically focus on the word decentralization. So to me, what makes Bitcoin sufficiently decentralized is the fact that it has three independent levels of decentralization. And we're going to talk about all three of them. Uh, one of them is the code, one of them is mining, and one of them is nodes. They are three independent parts. And for me, in order to consider a project to be efficiently decentralized. I don't like using the word decentralized because there's no like there's no line. It's it's always a gray line. There's no end to it. You can always get more decentralized. You can always be less decentralized, but is it sufficient enough? So each of these three parts of the Bitcoin ecosystem need to be sufficiently decentralized in order to really be considered sufficiently decentralized. So we're going to go through them one by one. Uh, the first one I want to focus on is code, and they are in no particular order. No one part of these three is more, is more uh, necessary to the system than the other. And this is the beauty of 
Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network, is that not one of these is uh, takes priority over the others. So we're going to start with code because that's kind of how Bitcoin started. And what does it mean for the code to be decentralized? That goes back to the Bitcoin core developers. The way code is written, the way code is reviewed, the way it's decided upon which uh, code is going to be part of the next uh, release of the next client. And unfortunately, Almost no one is doing statistics on what is going on in the code. Which developers are coding which lines. All the information is there. It is all on GitHub. But um, the first picture, that the first representation of it that came out was all the way back in 2016. So if you see the, the picture on the left there, um, that's uh, the 2016 of which core developers uh, have written and committed how much code. And you can see how Peter Willa is all the way at the top. And this was uh, already the coding of SegWit, uh, which was uh, mostly uh, Peter Willa and Gregory Maxwell working on that. And you can still see Nakamoto's code. Uh, he's up there at number four. Uh, you see uh, Gavin Andreessen is now way lower because this is now four years ago. It's amazing how that picture is from four years ago. And there was almost no one doing research analysis on this, but recently, about a year ago, there was another uh, article published on that, and you can see that over on the right side, and this is a Bitcoin's top 20 developers, but that's just top 20. Uh, there's a lot more than that, and you can see that now, um, uh, Vladimir Vanderlyn is uh, basically has uh, the majority of the code that was written. You still see Satoshi's code. That's that little purple band. Uh, and then there's also a concept of developer effort, which is how much of your work is actually uh, also being uh, overwritten and removed because there are updates. And the majority of that code has been written. And this is very, very important, and a lot of people underestimate the effort that it takes uh, to write Bitcoin. And you see the names, and you should be able to recognize some of those names if you've been in Bitcoin for three to four years. And if you don't, you should. Uh, you really should know who the core developers are. I know there's no um, altcoin fans in this audience, but if I was doing this presentation at uh, more of a shitcoin conference, I would say, can you name more than five core developers of your code? And I highly doubt anybody would, okay? Because I can usually name maybe one or two developers at some of the very popular altcoin projects, but that's as far as it goes. But in Bitcoin, you can be naming them all day. In fact, this was the comparison of how many core developers contributed uh, to uh, the Bitcoin core client uh, 0.14. This was the SegWit. This was the SegWit core client. And then you had Bitcoin Unlimited, which became Bitcoin Cash, that spun off because they didn't like it. And there's their list of developers uh, on that project. And I know some of those guys, and I'm like, uh, I don't know how much of a developers they are. You can look at Bitcoin error log right there, who got his, uh, that's uh, John Carvalho, uh, Bitcoin error log, the big troll of uh, 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 Bcash. And he got on that list by fixing some grammar. Uh, and then he kind of made sure, hey, I'm, uh, I want to be on that list. So. Uh, this is the big difference of how many developers are actually 
we're looking at your code and making sure that all the bugs are fixed. And it's also becoming uh, very challenging to say who is and isn't a Bitcoin Core developer. Oh, um, is anyone at the computer? I, I have a menu that I'm now controlling. There you go, thank you. And uh, it's becoming hard to say uh, who is a Bitcoin Core developer and who isn't because Bitcoin is just a base layer. And the protocol is getting really, really advanced with second layer solution and what is being built on top of it. Uh, so thank you, Lucas uh, Nuzi, for this graphic. Uh, it's from an article called Bitcoin's Technology Stack. Uh, and it was also very good. Just talked about all of the innovation uh, that is taking place on top of Bitcoin and all these second layer solutions. So if you're only working on Lightning, are you a Bitcoin Core developer or not? So uh, this is uh, the other thing to try and uh, explain to people that Bitcoin is just a foundation. You have all of these layers being built on top and um, I can't wait. And a lot of them are being built out at the same time. And that's why when people say, well, when is Lightning coming? When is this coming? But all of this is going to hit. And it's all going to, and I'm expecting it to be functioning very, very well. And it's all going to hit at the right time when we really, really need it. Uh, I, I know, it, I always say that, uh, I'm half embarrassed to say that I don't really use Lightning all that much, but I haven't needed to. Uh, the Bitcoin on-chain transactions have been pretty cheap and they've been pretty fast. A little less so lately, uh, so, uh, but that's on my to-do list right now. A quarantine is still on. Uh, to get a lightning game up because I think next year when the price of Bitcoin does rise and the moment we even come close to the old all-time high I think everyone's gonna have to use lightning if you want your transactions to be fast cheap and more private so a lot of innovation is coming and I don't understand how any other projects can claim that their the code of their project is sufficiently decentralized I believe that's a challenge because you can name one or two developers and it kind of ends. And if your altcoin can hard fork because one guy wants to hard fork, that's not a decentralized uh, coding effort. So that's my view on it. Or the nodes believe the coders uh, and everything they say, which we're gonna get to in a minute. All right, so let's move on to part two. So um, the second part of what makes Bitcoin decentralized is mining. And uh, Guy Swan talked about this uh, earlier in his presentation, which was great. Uh, this is awesome. Like the, the people that spoke and BTC Pay Server, uh, been using it for about two years through my website. Uh, so that's uh, great. So, um, and of course, uh, we'll call a multi-sig uh, and with Jimmy Song. So the presentation has been awesome. But uh, Guy Swan talked about mining and uh, Bitcoin mining is, uh, now that I have a statistic, is as much as the country of Switzerland, or we've passed Switzerland, and eventually it will come up. Uh, I can't wait till uh, Bitcoin mining uses more energy than uh, it's in the top 10 of all the countries. Uh, so that's what we're looking forward to. And anyone can join the mining game. Uh, the barrier to entry is uh, not simple, but anyone can do it. You don't need a license. Uh, you just need to understand uh, mining, you need to have access to the equipment, and you need to understand how to minimize your cost uh, with the electricity cost. 
And a lot of people love to demonize Bitcoin. This is the, I've debated Noriel Rubini, and it's very, very frustrating. When he sits there and says, Bitcoin is centralized because all the mining is done in China. And that's just incorrect on so many levels. Uh, because first of all, mining being centralized doesn't make Bitcoin centralized. He's forgetting about the coding effort, which I just already explained, and he doesn't even understand the concept of a node, which I haven't even gotten to yet in this presentation. And mining isn't done by single peers anymore. It's done in pools, and anyone can join, enter, and exit the pool. And mining in China isn't as big as it was before, and even if it was big, that's still okay, because uh, the user-activated soft fork proved that miners are not in control. Uh, they have a job, and it's a very, very important job. Very important job to keep Bitcoin decentralized. But uh, the pool operator still has a lot of theoretical control over what happens. Uh, but that's because everyone is still running uh, Stratum version 1 in their pool software when a block is found. And that is what uh, Brains is trying to change, which is uh, it's probably going to happen on slush pool first. Uh, and that would give the individual miner inside the pool uh, more power as to, or more say as to how that block is being structured. So now, if every single pool adopts the new, uh, basically, the, the new code, to how to structure that block, then the picture would look more like the one on the right, where even though it doesn't matter what pool you're in, you're still in control and the pool doesn't have this centralized aspect to the mining. And uh, mining does ha play a crucial role because it decentralizes the for a third time. And this is what's weird how projects that don't even have mining try to claim that they are more decentralized than a project that does. Because they just eliminated an entire third to maximize your sufficient decentralization. And we saw lots of shady things happening in the mining space, uh, mostly on lesser altcoins. Uh, and there was a lawsuit going on now, again, with uh, our favorite punching bag, uh, Bcash, where uh, rumor had it that the hash rate from the bitcoins.com a mining pool was used to defend the split versus Craig Wright because Craig Wright had more hashing power on that chain. Uh, they also were able to put, uh, what do you call them, like uh, stop the code from being updated. It was checkpoints uh, into the code. So everything just went centralized in order to protect uh, your blockchain, which is not how it's supposed to work. So. Uh, Mining is certainly uh, going to get better. And here's a look at some of the other uh, tokens that are a proof of work as well. And you can see how uh, everything but Bitcoin, we have Bitcoin in the upper left, and you can see everything but Bitcoin can basically, uh, you have a 51% attack with just three miners. Now, a 51% attack is a whole other thing we can talk about all day. But... It's very, very challenging to do a 51% attack in Bitcoin because of game theory. 
It's very easy to do a 51% attack on an altcoin. Ethereum Classic is not even on this list. Uh, they just had a 51% attack. And the reason why it was easy, uh, not the, one of the reasons is, is because there's not that much hash power on it, so it doesn't cost you much to acquire 51% of the hash rate. But the bigger aspect of why it can happen is because you have another coin you can move into. Uh, and you're going to attack it through an exchange. You're going to double spend the exchange. But you can move that money into Bitcoin. If you try to 51% attack Bitcoin, where are you going to move your money to? What is your exit point? Right? How do you get it out? Uh, you can try and get it through the bank, but that's not going to end well for you. So uh, there's a lot more things that protect Bitcoin from a 51% attack than the theory of, oh, I'll just have enough hashing power. Okay, how do you get the money out, it's like, hey, I just snuck into uh, the gold vault of the Federal Reserve. Okay, how do I get the gold out? Uh, that, that's, uh, that's the other problem. And um, now, by just glancing at this real quick, Litecoin is still doing okay. And Ethereum is actually not doing too bad. They have like, they have, a domina uh, they have uh, two uh, of the pools. One of them is probably unknown. Um, I'm not a big fan of, uh, it, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, if you have a big chunk that is unknown, so you don't know who's mining it. On the one hand, it's good. It's, well, it's anonymous. You don't have to, no one has to know who's mining it. But then if like 80% of your mining is being done as unknown, you really don't know if it's a single miner that could attack the coin. And uh, it, again, it doesn't make sense to attack it if that's the highest level coin like Bitcoin. But if it's not, it certainly will get attacked at some point. And the irony is that if we look at Ethereum, which I was going to talk about at the end, but if we look at Ethereum, they have the same three aspects. You have nodes, you have miners, and you have the code. Well, it's pretty obvious that the coding is fairly centralized, even though they claim they have more developers. Uh, but it's not about the quantity and some other projects going back to the code part It's not about the quantity of your developers Do you want as many as possible? And it's definitely about the quality of your developers, but I'm sure there is some Altcoin project out there that says we have the smartest engineer in the world Yeah, but it's the combination of quality and quantity if you have one amazing smart guy um, okay, that's great. And if you have 18,000 coders that no one's ever heard of, that's okay. But that combination of quality and quantity is what separates Bitcoin from the rest. And Ethereum's mining is actually pretty decentralized. But guess what they want to do? They want to go proof of stake, which just baffles the mind. Uh, they're going proof of stake because they understand that uh, uh, the way they're mining uh, it's not going to last in the long term, but uh, it's just, to me, that's funny that that's the, out of the three things, as hard as it is to run a node, and you can read Stop and Decrypt articles for that, they have, their nodes are way more centralized, full archive nodes, and their coding is centralized. The only aspect of their chain is decentralized as mining, and that's what they're looking to get rid of, which I find incredibly uh, comical. Alright, so let's move on to the last part. I have about six minutes left, and that's the nodes. So this is the one way that someone like myself can actually participate. Yeah, I run one miner, but that's more of a hobby. I can't really...
helped the Bitcoin network much by running a mining farm, not my specialty. My, uh, I do have a degree in financial engineering and I'm plus coding at one point, but not very well. Uh, so that's not gonna happen either. But I can run a full note. And that's really, really important. And if we look at the full note, and we all learn how important nodes are, again, during the user-activated software. And the latest statistics from BitNodes are estimating that there are about 10,000 nodes. You can see the concentrations in the US and in Europe, even more so in Europe. Uh, not as many in Asia. But these, these are statistics are on uh, listening nodes. So these are the nodes where uh, you're actually connected to the network and you're letting the network know that here's my node and it's uh, open. And uh, Lukas Jr. has a different view on uh, nodes and uh, right here's a graphic from May 2019 and he estimates that there are a closer to 100,000 nodes, this is about 95,000 nodes, uh, because you don't have to you know, present to the world that this is my node and it's open on the network. Uh, however, uh, in this graphic, you can see that he lists only 26,000 of those nodes as having the most updated and the most recent version of the code. It's because a lot of people, while they take some time to create that node, they don't pay enough attention to it to keep it updated. But here's the worst part. But this is a May 2019 graphic that shows close to 100,000 nodes. Here's the one, here's the picture I took a few days ago. And this graphic, and if you just add those up, that's about 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, that's about 37, plus 5,000 of actual latest software updated nodes. And uh, where the prior graphic, if I have them next to each other, that was 26,000 in green. And if you add up all the nodes on the left-hand side, that's closer to 50,000. So according to Lukas Jr., we lost about 50,000 nodes in the last year. And again, this, this is really, really important that enough people, and 50,000 nodes is sufficiently decentralized, but look, the area that has outdated code is also growing. And um, these are, this is a little bit unfortunate, and hopefully, um, uh, like we'll start nine was doing their demo and more projects will come out that will help people take sovereignty of their nodes to make that system, uh, that part of Bitcoin's decentralization more decentralized. And the craziest part was in 2017 during the hard fork wars where the big blockers actually tried to convince you that we need a bigger block. Not only would that have split the network, but we're seeing the effects, and this is why Luktash Jr. is trying to push for a smaller block size because he sees this as an initial barrier to entry. Because if you wanna have a full archival node, you now have to download 300 gigs of data. And that's still growing right now. Uh, this is why things like Ethereum and EOS, they can't even compete on nodes. Their blockchains are three, four, five terabytes of size now. And you see the difference in the in the in this last in this year from May 2019 August of this year, uh, the blockchain went up by about I think 100 uh, gigs. It went from 300 from 200 to 300. 
And uh, that could be, that's already feels like it's becoming a barrier to entry. So there needs to be a way to keep Bitcoin nodes sufficiently decentralized because that's a major one third. And uh, the majority of all these Bitcoin nodes are Bitcoin core client. Uh, just a few people are still running all this other nonsense, which there's no need to get into. So um, it's, to me, it's still pretty clear that each of these three parts is individually sufficiently decentralized for a decentralized network like Bitcoin. And you still not only have to take over one of these parts, uh, you have to control the majority of the nodes. You have to control the majority of the mining. You have to be the dictator of the Bitcoin code. And probably at least two of these parts of the triangle have to be done by the same entity or the same person. And then, only then, can someone claim that Bitcoin is more centralized than sufficiently decentralized. And if uh, this was my presentation here last year, and if we look at this four-part uh, insanity of the altcoins, uh, just think about it. Just grab any altcoin project uh, you can think of and think of it from those three aspects. Nodes that validate the transactions, miners that um, order those transactions and process them and earn the reward, and the coders. How decentralized is your project from those three elements? And you'll have your answer fairly quick the moment you start doing uh, some research on each of those three parts individually. And if one of those three parts is missing, which is usually the mining part, it's pretty much over. Because by not having mining, all of a sudden the amount of coins you have adds to the centralization or decentralization of the network. So that's the beauty of it. In Bitcoin, it doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how many Bitcoins you have. You can, have, you can be Satoshi with a million Bitcoin. You can be you know, Roger Veer with over 100,000 Bitcoin. They do not control those three parts. But if you're a proof of stake system, the richer you are, the more control you have. That's not a world I want to see in the future. So uh, thank you guys. Hope you enjoyed this presentation. And uh, looking forward to coming back next year. All right, five minutes for questions, guys. Thanks very much, man. That was awesome. This is all about decentralization in every single way, and I just love that stuff. I have a question. I want to get your thoughts on a subtlety about node version running. Um, I'm of the opinion, and I get in arguments sometimes, that we should not all update in sync to the, the latest version. If you remember the inflation bug, um, if we had all updated to that same version, and the bug actually took place, we, it would have sucked. We kind of we would have relied on the people that didn't update in order to tell us what the you know, consensus should have been. So I kind of see a variety and diversity of node versions as another form of decentralization, but I know there's also another argument for updating. Um, so I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I'm not an expert on that. It does sound uh, very, very reasonable. But at the same time, you shouldn't be, let's say, five versions behind. Okay. All right, so uh, I, I guess uh, you can take that view. I mean, I hate doing updates on anything, on my, uh, on my phones, on my apps. Yeah, and, um, and when I do, I tend to skip 
a lot. Okay. So it's not necessarily a bad idea if everyone just skips. Hey, you know what? I, I didn't do the latest update, and I didn't do the update after that, but now it's time for me to hop. So if people do these hops, I think that would be the, a, a good scenario that you're describing. Okay, thanks. Hey, Tone, uh, longtime viewer of the channel and big fan here. <laughs> um, so what do you attribute that loss of nodes to, the, the amount that that is? And also, with, the, with quality SPV wallets like Green Address, Samurai, and the hardware wallets, how is that number ever going to go up? What is the need for that? Yeah. So I actually didn't know that that jump happened until like a few days ago when I was doing research for the presentation. So that actually scared me a little bit. I'm like, holy shit, that, uh, we just lost like half the nodes. Because BitNodes is showing you pretty much the same number. It's always been around 10,000. But the uh, Dash Jr. graphic is significantly different. And then you're seeing these like, you know, the oldest versions of nodes just like expand based on percentage. Um, I don't know what I can contribute that to. I guess, uh, I think the biggest factor is comfort and a little bit of laziness. People were really uh, adamant about defending Bitcoin during, in 2017 with the user activated software. And then it kind of died down, so everyone relaxed a little bit. Uh, so maybe that was a really good thing. It got people very, very interested. I mean, like I fired up my node. And um, uh, so I think that's one of the reasons why the drop happened. I don't think it's the fact that the blockchain is too big in size yet, though that is a future concern. But on the other uh, question that you mentioned, uh, which was, what was the second part? How is it going to increase? Oh, what? increase, yes. So these nodes, like that was the push for wallets. Uh, so you should be able to run your node and then your SPV wallet, like it's actually connecting to your node uh, that you have running. That was another thing that became popular in 2017. Uh, so I think every wallet, and I believe uh, Blockstream Green has that, and, uh, and all of them do, where you can actually input uh, your own uh, node location, and then you can go still through your own node. And uh, we'll start nine. Uh, I was at the demo last night, and um, again, they, uh, you create a prune node and uh, off of the archival node, and you can use your own node for that. All right, last Thanks. question. Hey, Ton. Um, so one quick question. I want to see if you can help me to understand something that apparently I just learned this week. Uh, and it needs to be somebody like you to explain it because you have a strong reputation in Bitcoin. And for example, I don't. So because I don't have a reputation in Bitcoin, if I were to, looking at that last graph you showed with all the ICOs, you know, if I were to create my own ICO on a shitcoin, meaning that it's centralized, right, like Ethereum, then by default that makes it a shitcoin. But if somebody like you with a strong reputation in Bitcoin creates a shitcoin in Ethereum that somehow makes it like not like your mama's ICO. How does your reputation in Bitcoin translate into making uh, an ICO in Ethereum be like a real um, like non-shitcoin? I have trouble understanding that. Apparently that's something that's, that's just right. come up recently. So if you were to make an ICO, how, what would you do to make it like be a not shitcoin? I think... <laughs> I mean, this is what's referred to as an affinity scam, which is where you uh, build a reputation, you have a reputation, and then you just uh, 
may not even burn that reputation. You burn that reputation to some, but you know you sucker everybody in. This is the you know the Richard Hart model, um, basically. But um, yeah, it's unfortunate, and um, that's the thing. There is multiple levels to that. An ICO on Ethereum basically tells me that you're you're using an unsecure bottom layer. If you built that ICO on top of, say, Bitcoin, Liquid, or RGB, there, there's other, there are, uh, you can build your shitcoin on top of Bitcoin. It doesn't change that from being a shitcoin. It just means you were smarter about the underlying layer. You know, it's, uh, uh, it, it, it doesn't change the outcome of it, but at least you're smarter about the underlying tech. Uh, so that's kind of my view on it. So the, the, the concept of these utility tokens need to be you know, publicly traded for a, uh, to a discover a value is crazy. Um, all right, guys, I'm standing between you and lunch. So uh, probably good to wrap it up so everybody can eat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the BitBlock Boom podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. Make sure and take a look at this year's lineup of speakers at bitblockboom.com. And if you use the code COUSINS, that's C-O-U-S-I-N-S, when purchasing your conference tickets, you'll receive 30% off the price of a general admission ticket. I hope to meet you at next year's BitBlock Boom conference in Dallas, Texas, and thanks for listening. Big Black Boom! Let's go! Let's go, Crypto!